0: I want you to read this statement, or just listen to it while I read this statement. North American technology is using up non-renewable resources at an alarming rate and in the process polluting the environment and destroying the ozone layer. We must therefore stop before it is too late. Halt all technological research and let us return to a simplified, decentralized, agricultural-based economy. Now that's an original document. I wrote it. It also is totally free from any grammatical mistakes. It also happens to be totally consistent with all observed data. Does it therefore make the conclusion in red authoritative and binding upon everybody? Now you say, of course not, that's just your opinion. That's what we ought to do. And you're absolutely right. But of course it raises an interesting question about the Bible. Because if, as we did last week, prove that the Bible is an accurate reflection of the original, and is relatively uh, relatively free as far as we can tell of internal contradictions and external inconsistencies, then does it automatically make its recommendations for life and practice authoritative? You might say, well, of course, in one case it's different because this Bible says it is authoritative. Well, what if I would add these words to my prayer? The above words came from the Holy Spirit, so you must receive it as the word of God. Now, if this document also says it is from, the, from God, does it make it any more authoritative? Well, of course not, because you'd say you wrote it. You can't prove from your own document that your document is authoritative. That's true again. But then it raises the same question about the Bible. You can't prove from the Bible that the Bible is authoritative. That's a circular argument. How do we respond to that? Having established that this is an accurate reflection of the original Greek and Hebrew and that it is free of internal and external contradictions is only half the story. We now have to deal with a much more important question of inspiration, inerrancy, and authority. Is there a non-circular argument that allows us to respond to it? I, yes, I definitely believe there is. And there are four parts to it. You'll be seeing it quite often in the First of all... We established that the New Testament documents are historically reliable documents. That's what we looked at last week. Specifically, because they are historically reliable, they give us information that is reliable about Jesus' life, His words, His death, and above all, His resurrection. If the resurrection is true, then the resurrection certifies Jesus' claims to be God. Because when the people asked him, What sign can you give to us that you have authority to do these things? He said, No sign will be given to this unbelieving generation except the sign of Jonah. In three days, the Son of Man will rise. And if in fact the the resurrection is true, and thus certified Jesus to be God, then of course whatever he says as God is absolutely true, because God cannot lie. And then, Specifically, what he said about the scriptures are true, that they are the inspired word of God. This is the fundamental, non-circular argument for trusting in the inerrancy of the scriptures, that it is the authoritative word of God. They are historically reliable, they c- reliable information about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. If the resurrection is true, it certifies Jesus to be God. If Jesus is God, then what he said, which we have historically and accurately recorded, is true, Specifically that the scriptures are the word of God. And it is very easy to see what is the key to this whole argument. It is the resurrection. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then of course his claims to be God are not substantiated. If Jesus is not God, then he's just an ordinary mortal. Maybe even a remarkable ordinary mortal. But his words are simply the words of man. And it is then his word against my word. One man's word against another man's word. And we do not have any basis for believing that this accurate, consistent document is also the Word of God. And so, in order to establish ultimately the authority and the inspiration of the Scriptures as the Word of God, we have to establish the reality and the historicity of the resurrection. Now, there's excellent material in our libraries, and I will not belabor you with all kinds of details. Chapter 10 of Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and Frank Morrison's book Who Moved the Stone are two of the best books that I've read in this subject and you can explore them in detail but for tonight I want to sort of outline the four big pillars if you will on which the case for the resurrection rests if we master these I think in any normal conversation with an honest inquirer we will be able to give them enough reason to stimulate further research on their part into the much greater detailed and specific questions that they may have on this subject First of all, we need to start with the realization of the fact that Jesus' tomb was empty. Why do I say that? You see, if you examine the preaching of the apostles and the early Christians, we find that they were not preaching a new system of ethics. We find they were not preaching any kind of a new philosophy or a new religion. The heart and core of their preaching was one message. This Jesus whom you have crucified, God has raised up from the dead and let all Israel know that he is Lord and Christ. You see, a Buddhist can afford to say, doesn't matter if Buddha ever lived or the details of his teachings were historical or not. We have his ethical system. A Hindu can say, it doesn't matter if all of the details of the Ramayana and the Mahabharata and all the great religious epics are true or not. It doesn't matter if they're only mythology. You still have the teachings. But a Christian cannot say that. He cannot say, it doesn't matter if Jesus rose from the dead or not, we have his teachings. Because the heart of the Christian faith is the resurrection. And all that the high priest and the, all of the other people who wanted to oppose Christianity had to do, because of this focus on the resurrection, was to take out the body of Jesus and parade it up and down the streets of Jerusalem. And Christianity would have died at its inception and you and I wouldn't be here this evening. But interesting, isn't it? Instead, they tried everything else. They tried to beat them, they threatened them, they persecuted them, they killed them. But they couldn't stop the preaching of the resurrection. For the obvious reason that there was no body there. So powerful is this argument that all of the skeptics who doubt the resurrection also accept that the tomb was empty because they can't otherwise deal with this historical fact. Instead they try and give alternative explanations for how the tomb came to be empty. And there are four major arguments that you will run into. The first one is called the swoon theory. It basically says that Jesus didn't die on the cross but when he was given that vinegar uh, he fainted. And so they took him down and put him into the tomb and in the coolness of the tomb with the fragrance of the spices he revived and when he revived the disciples saw him and misunderstood it as the resurrection that's the basic the heart of the theory it has all kinds of variations how do you answer something like that well first of all it's very interesting that this theory first appeared in the 18th century for 1700 years nobody thought about it particularly the ones who were much closer to the actual sequence of events specifically the chief priests who had absolutely every reason to make sure that Jesus didn't rise from the dead they believed he was dead for sure They had no doubts. And how about the Roman soldiers? These men were experts in death. And Pilate sent the soldiers to break the legs of these three men who were crucified so that they couldn't keep lifting themselves up and prolong their uh, breathing. But they didn't have to break Jesus' legs because the Roman soldiers knew right away that he was dead. They certainly knew that. And if somehow he didn't die there, tell me, How could a man who was so severely lashed, and the lashing alone was enough in many cases to kill people, who then had four crucifixion marks on his body, the thrust of the spear in his side, who was then bound up not with a few drops of perfume, but with 100 pounds of burial spices. How did he get out of the grave clothes? How did he roll away the stone? How did he then overcome the Roman guard? But most important of all, how did he then convince his frightened disciples that he was the Lord of heaven and earth? William Leckie is a British historian who is a skeptic, he's not a believer. This is what he says about the swoon theory. He says, It is impossible that a being who had stolen half dead out of the sepulchre, who crept about weak and ill, wanting medical treatment, who required bandaging, strengthening, and indulgence, and who still at last yielded to his sufferings, that he could ever have given to his disciples the impression that he was a conqueror over death and the grave the prince of life an impression which lay at the bottom of their preaching such a resuscitation could only have weakened the impression which he made upon them in life and could by no possibility have ever changed their sorrow into enthusiasm or have elevated their reverence into worship that's a pretty good summary statement to dismiss the swoon theory well if Jesus died And the next option is the theft theory. Well, he did die, but somebody came and took away the body. Okay, let's look at that a little bit more in detail. There's only two kinds of people who could have taken away the body of Jesus. Either the enemies of Jesus or the friends. You see, Jesus was the kind of person who didn't have any other types. Immediately, people had to make one choice or the other when they confronted him. They hated him and went after him, or they loved him and died for him, eventually. Now, the enemies of Jesus had absolutely no reason to take the body of Christ. But if for some peculiar purpose we were to concede for a moment that some of them did for whatever reason they would have had no trouble at all producing the body of Jesus to stop the preaching of the resurrection. So for this theory to be even remotely possible as an explanation for the empty tomb it would have, we would have to concede that it was the disciples, of anybody who stole the body. But that becomes impossible for two very powerful reasons. First of all just the physical problems. Pilate had granted Caiaphas and the others a Roman guard now most secular historians agree on the fact that a Roman guard consisted of between 10 to 16 people each one of whom was trained to guard 6 square feet of ground with his life the penalty for falling asleep on duty was execution for the guard who fell asleep and for everybody else who was part of that team so if you were a Roman guard I think you'd make pretty sure that not only did you not fall asleep you'd make pretty sure that nobody else fell asleep as well Remember how Herod had all of the guards executed when they found that Peter had gone from prison. So it was highly unlikely that they fell asleep. Besides, if they did fall asleep, how did they know that it was the disciples who came and stole the body? Which is what the chief priest told them to say. Those are some of the physical problems. How about the psychological problems, which are even more amazing to overcome if you think the disciples had to steal the body? Imagine, if you will, with me, that you and I are people who have been under oppression by a foreign government for hundreds of years. We have absolutely no freedoms at all. We are totally at their mercy and their disposal. But in our religious history there is the promise of a redeemer whom we have grown to expect would be a political deliver. Suddenly this man appears upon the scene. He shows all kinds of powers over nature. He is afraid of nobody. He challenges the authorities and he calls you to follow him. And you leave your jobs. You give the three best years of your life to follow him. And all of a sudden your hopes come crashing to an ignominable end when he dies the most cruel and the most despicable death possible. That reserved for the worst of all criminals. What kind of a mood would you be in? Depressed? Anger? Fearful? Probably all three. That's exactly the kind of mood the disciples were in after Jesus' crucifixion. Certainly not the kind of mood in which one was going to play practical jokes and steal a dead body. Besides, we have to remember the fact that the disciples were not expecting the resurrection. It was the furthest thing from their mind. Remember when the two women made their way to the tomb on surly Sunday morning. What was their big preoccupation? Who's going to roll away the stone for us? They, had, they didn't think the stone was going to be rolled away they fully expected to find the body of Jesus in there they just wanted somebody to roll the body away, stone away and remember how the disciples wouldn't believe every report they first got of the resurrection Jesus had to rebuke them for their unbelief now tell me if the resurrection was the furthest thing from their mind why would they go out and steal the body of Jesus in order to make other people believe what they themselves didn't believe Even more to the point, why would they then go on preaching that this man was living when the cost of doing that was beatings, floggings, imprisonments and for all but one of them, martyrdom? It doesn't make sense. As one man summed it up very beautifully, people will die for what they know to be the truth. People will even die for what they believe to be the truth but which may be a lie. But nobody ever dies for a lie which they know is a lie. Which is what would have had to happen if we were to believe the disciples stole the body okay, we get a third explanation no Jesus was dead he didn't swoon the disciples didn't steal the body of Jesus Christ but you see that Sunday morning when the women went to the tomb it was very early in the morning and it was dark so they went to the wrong tomb because there are all kinds of tombs in Jerusalem and there they saw a gardener there and the gardener said to them hey what are you looking for him here This isn't where they put him. Here's where they put him. Look at the right tomb. And then the women got so scared because they didn't expect to find this man there that they ran away thinking it was an angel and started telling everybody that Jesus had risen from the dead. This fanciful theory is called the wrong tomb theory developed by a theologian, if you will, by the name of Kersop Lake. And it's called Lake's theory. And what about all the other people who saw Jesus? Well, those are hallucinations. So let's take a look, very brief look at the third and the fourth popular explanations. Uh, the wrong tomb theory and then the hallucination theory. Although the hallucination theory does not explain how the tomb came to be empty. We'll look at it anyway. The only problem with the wrong tomb theory is if the women went to the wrong tomb, why didn't the Sanhedrin go to the right tomb? Particularly since Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin. Well known. Well known. Also, if there was a gardener hanging around there in the morning, why didn't these people produce the gardener as a material witness afterwards? To easily disprove to everybody. Because all of the early preaching happened in a very, very hostile environment with eyewitnesses present. The gardener would have been there. Besides, what about the soldiers? If Jesus was simply lying in another tomb and the women went to the wrong tomb, the soldiers would still be there. Sixteen Roman soldiers are hardly likely to be frightened by a gardener. Why didn't the women find the soldiers still around? And then there are some other problems. If it was really that dark, what was the gardener doing there to begin with? I mean, if it was so dark that they couldn't recognize the tomb, it was too dark for the gardener to be working. If it was bright enough for the gardener to be working, it was bright enough for the women to recognize the right tomb. See, so it just simply doesn't hold water at all. And as for the hallucination theory, McDowell has got in his book several fundamental principles, psychiatric principles that relate to this whole question of hallucinations. And of them I have selected the four most important criterion that are required for people to have hallucinations usually. And not one of them is met in the case of the disciples. First of all, to begin with, hallucinations only usually come to certain kinds of people. Highly strung, highly imaginative, nervous types. And yet the appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ were not restricted to any one particular type of personality trait or of any particular type of moods. There were all kinds of people, fishermen, doctors, uh, at least one doctor and several other people who saw him. Secondly, hallucinations are usually linked to some particular experience that is buried in the person's subconscious from the past. And therefore, hallucinations are highly individualistic and very subjective, and one well-known neurobiologist has concluded as a, because of this stuff that very, very unlikely it is that two people will have the same hallucination yet a wide variety of people of average soundness of mind in the scriptures on various occasions saw essentially an unchanging Jesus essentially the same so-called hallucination thirdly, hallucinations are usually associated with a particular place that triggers some memories. Yet Jesus' appearances were not restricted to any one particular place and they came at all kinds of times highly unconducive to hallucinations. Early in the morning, in the middle of the day, on a private interview to Peter, towards the end of the evening on a road to Emmaus, late at night at supper inside a room and then to 500 people on a mountain in Galilee. Nothing very specu- peculiar about that. And fourthly and last of all, Hallucinations require a certain strong expectancy on the part of the people. Usually those who hallucinate have a very, very intense desire to want something to happen or to believe something. And they actually create this in their imagination and then project reality onto what they have imagined. And thus to hallucinate requires a fair degree of psychological preparation over a period of time. Yet as we have already seen, as far as the apostles were concerned, the last thing they were expecting was the resurrection. Each one of them had to be persuaded against their will. Touch me, taste me, give me some fish. That's how Jesus had to go around. So, so not one of the four conditions are met as far as hallucinations are concerned. So what do we find ourselves with? We find ourselves with an empty tomb and four absolutely fantastic theories to explain how the tomb came to be empty. To believe any one of these things takes much greater faith than to believe the biblical accounts of the resurrection. And then you've got to add to it all these other facts. The transformation of Saul of Tarsus. Secular history books recognize that somewhere along the line Saul became Paul and they don't know what, how to explain it. How about the disciples? What changed 11 cowardly, fearful, frightened men into men who could take on the Roman Empire and shake it upside down and not even be stopped by martyrdom? What changed the Sabbath day from Saturday to Sunday? You have to remember that every one of the first Christians were Jews to whom the Sabbath was very, very important. Something cataclysmic must have happened on that Sunday to change that day of worship. And then lastly, have you ever wondered how the death of a religious leader has become the focal point of a community celebration? That's unique in any religion. To take somebody on who, whom you pinned all your hopes on and who just died and then decide to celebrate that occasion is the most unbelievable thing the only thing that makes sense how the communion ever became part of the worship of the church is because it didn't end there and he went through death to resurrection so you put all of these things together we find a very very solid basis as far as any historical event can be proved that Jesus rose from the dead and if he did then we have our basic answer to the question. Whatever he says as God is therefore true, specifically what he said about the scriptures, that they are the inspired word of God. Jot down a few of the things that Jesus, as God, said about the scriptures. First jot down Matthew nineteen one to That is the time when the Pharisees came to him and asked him about divorce. And you know what he said. He said, I'm not going to talk to you about divorce, I'm going to talk to you about marriage. And the interesting thing is what he said in Matthew chapter 19. He said, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. That's from Genesis chapter 2. He roots his moral teaching about the nature of marriage on the creation of Adam and Eve. In fact, Jesus throughout his lifetime referred to something or the other from the first 22 chapters of the book of Genesis. And some evangelical scholars today who would like to depart from this commitment to inerrancy of scriptures, say to us, look, the Bible is not necessarily true on matters of science and history, but it's true on matters of faith and doctrine. Well, Jesus put the two of them right together. He said, I'm going to give you the moral teaching on marriage by rooting it in the creation story of Adam and Eve. You can't have one without the other." And then in uh, Mark's gospel, 12.36, jot this down. He says, Referring to Psalm 110 when he quotes it. He says, David said speaking by the Holy Spirit. So according to Jesus, David spoke by the Holy Spirit. And he certified all of the Psalms of David as being inspired. In that one word. And then in perhaps the most remarkable statement of all in John 10.34. Where he's debating with them about his deity. He rests his case on a single word. God as opposed to God's. And this is what he says in 10.35. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father has set apart? In that one verse he refers to the three most common ways of referring to the Bible. He calls it the law or the Torah. He calls it the word of God or the Logos. And he calls it the graphe or the written scripture. So the moral law of God enshrined in the spoken word of God that was written down, all of it Jesus says one word cannot be broken. And he sums it all up in Matthew, in Mark 13:31, uh, when he says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but not one word of mine will pass away. Specifically, therefore, his words about the scriptures are firmly established, and we have basically have a non-circular, valid argument, and it is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what the resurrected Christ had to say about the word of God. Let's move now very quickly to dispel the fourth and the final objection that comes as far as the scriptures are concerned. Okay, we admit now that they are historically accurate. And we admit that they are free from internal and external contradictions. We also admit that on the basis of Jesus' resurrection, scripture was inspired. But, after all, fallible men had to do one more important task they had to determine which of the many writings available to them were inspired scriptures and which of them were purely written by other people and how do we know that in the process of putting these things together they didn't leave out some things that should be in and they didn't put in something that shouldn't be and this is not a academic question when i in one of my visits to india a few years ago one of my father's friends said to me oh look the bible teaches reincarnation but some of your people just left it out when they were putting the bible together So this is something you're likely to face. By the way, this process of assimilating a Bible together is called... The technical word for it is canonization. Not of saints, but canonization of the Bible. Okay, how do we answer this question? And again, we will see it ultimately rooted in the resurrection, but there are a few other answers we can give before that. First of all, the fundamental question is still the same. And the answer is still the same. If God can so superintend human beings who are fallible and enable them to write a scripture that is accurate and without error and authoritative, in other words, inspire the content of scripture, it is not very hard for us to believe that the same God can superintend and supernaturally the same fallible being and guard them from error when they are putting it together. That's the first basic thing. And it's is—it's a necessary process. You know why? What did Satan do as soon as God spoke his first words to man? He came and tried to corrupt And that Satan, who way at the beginning of history tried to corrupt the spoken word of God, didn't lose any time trying to corrupt the written word of God. And if you will, in today's language, he made sure that the market was flooded with all kinds of counterfeits. And a counterfeit, in order to have value, has got to look pretty close to the original thing. You don't buy monopoly money and try and pass it off as counterfeit. You get something that looks very close to the original. And so he made sure that the market was flooded with all kinds of stuff that looked very much like the scriptures, but wasn't. And therefore it was necessary for God to superintend the process of collection of the scriptures as well. He inspired not only the content, but he inspired the process as well. How did he do it? He gave to the patriarchs and he gave to the early church fathers, the early church fathers, five basic tests that they used. Is a given piece of writing, and they ask themselves five questions. Is a given piece of writing authoritative? By that they mean, does it come with a thus saith the Lord? Does it have a ring of truth in it? Or does it have excessive appeal to visions and dreams and magic and things like that, like many of the pseudo-epistles do? That was the first question they asked themselves. Secondly, they asked themselves, is it prophetic? In other words... Does it come from somebody who is standing in the mainstream of biblical revelation, a prophet of God, an apostle of God, a one who was very closely linked with one of the apostles? This test basically said the word of God must come through a man of God. That's basically the second test. Then thirdly, they asked themselves the question, is it authentic? Is it consistent with other revelation that we've already believed is authoritative and prophetic? This does not rule out the progressive nature of revelation. So that when Jesus came and said the Old Testament sacrifices are finished, or the book of Hebrews did. That was not a contradiction, that was a natural development that made sense when you looked at all of it together. All those kinds of issues were dealt with in this matter of, is the scripture authentic? Now if it was authoritative, prophetic and authentic, these were the three primary tests, then two other tests gave them some further uh, uh, confidence. But without these three, the next two wouldn't be important by themselves. But with these three, the next two became important. Is it dynamic? Does it come with life-changing power? And some of you know my friends Vic and Connie Downing, whom you've prayed for over the years. And two or three years ago, when Connie was really struggling between Christianity and Eastern mysticism. This is what saved her. I remember a time when... <coughs> a very wise pastor told her, listen, since you already believe that all religions are the same anyway and since you love to meditate, why don't you meditate in the scripture? She said, fine. So he gave her that scripture from Timothy which said there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. She, he said, go and meditate on that. So she started meditating and literally all hell broke loose because she would write in letters about open confrontations with Satan. Anyway, one night I got, I guess, the most pleasant, disturbing call that I ever had at about 10.30, 11 o'clock at night, the telephone rang. It was only 8 o'clock in California at that time. And Connie was on the line at the other end. She said, Sundar, I want to tell you I've become a Christian. I said, how did it happen? She says, I was meditating on John 17. Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. And she said, suddenly my eyes were open, And I realized that Jesus' word is true." That's dynamic. And then lastly, they asked themselves the question, was it received? Was a given piece of literature received, copied, circulated, read, and eventually accepted? See, our channels of communication today are very rapid. In those days, it wasn't that rapid. So it took some time from the initial acceptance of a document to its final acceptance. This was the five-fold test. And the way they applied it was simply this. If these characteristics, particularly the first three, were obviously present, the book was immediately accepted. If they were obviously absent, the book was immediately rejected. But if they were not obviously present or absent, the book was doubted and continued to be carefully examined until it was dealt with one way or another and let me give you some illustrations of how they did it in the Old Testament for example 34 of the 39 books were immediately accepted which were the books that were doubted Song of Solomon was doubted because of its obvious emphasis on on sensuality Uh, Ecclesiastes was doubted because of its skeptical view of life Esther was doubted because the word God doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible in that book well, how did they resolve them? As they continued to scrutinize them and apply these tests, they began to learn a few things. They began to realize, for example, that marital sexual joy was part of God's creative gift, and there was nothing internally inconsistent with Song of Solomon. They accepted it. When they looked at Ecclesiastes, they finally realized that that was given to warn men and women against the danger of an excessive trust on human wisdom to try and figure out the ways of God but that the best thing to do was to fear God and obey his commandments, which is the last part of Ecclesiastes. So it was accepted into the canon. And finally, the amazing thing about Esther, they found that even though the word God never appears, the uh, four consonants of the word Yahweh were used four times in that book as a very clever acrostic at four key points in the book. And so Esther was accepted into the canon. So this is an illustration of the process. In the New Testament, 20 of the 27 books were immediately accepted. Seven books were doubted, uh, 2nd and 3rd John, uh, Revelation, 2nd Peter, Jude, uh, Hebrews, uh, and James. And they were carefully scrutinized. And James is a good illustration. Why was it doubted at first? Because it seemed that James was teaching justification by works and flying in the face of the Pauline teaching on justification by faith. But as they began to read James and understand it, and as it was received and applied, they began to see that James was not at all contradicting what the Apostle Paul was saying. James also taught justification by faith, but he said the true faith that justifies a man must inevitably express itself in a transformed life. Which is, of course, exactly what the Apostle Paul teaches elsewhere in his Bible. So these were the kind of processes by which The 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament were put together. They weren't just arbitrarily tossed around here and there. God superintended the process. And by the way, the bottom line, bottom line for all of this, that this method in fact worked, is Jesus' words again. For you see, at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, this process had been completed for the Old Testament. The present 39 books of the Bible were the books that were available at that time when Jesus referred to the scriptures. And it was of that scripture that he made these remarkable statements that we talked about a little bit earlier. So in that process, Jesus not only authorized the content, he also authorized this fivefold process by which the Old Testament was put together. What about the New Testament, you say? Jesus made two important comments to his disciples. First of all, he said to the disciples on one occasion, I have many things that I would like to share with you now, but you are not able to receive them. But when the Holy Spirit comes, He will lead you into all truth. So the first thing He promised them was the Holy Spirit will come and continue to superintend this process. But then He also said something else. He said, the Spirit of God will bring to your remembrance everything that I have spoken to you. Sometimes people wonder, well, how can you trust in the memory of fallible human beings? You know something? You only have to think of the technique that some therapists use today called hypnosis. And under hypnosis, I'm told that they're able to bring out to the surface unbelievably accurate data. Like in one case that I read, under hypnosis, a man was able to actually tell his therapist how many times the man's foot went up and down during the one-hour conversation. His brain had recorded that, and he didn't even know it. I say to you, if man using hypnosis can bring about those kinds of facts, is it very difficult for us to believe that the Holy Spirit of God can bring back to the minds of these men exactly what Jesus said and exactly what happened? So both in the Old and the New Testaments have been authorized by none other than Jesus Christ himself, not only in terms of content, but in terms of the process as well. We can be absolutely sure that this book that we have here is the book that God intended for us to have, is the book that has everything that is necessary for life and godliness. Let me just close with this story. A very godly evangelical scholar by the name of J. Barton Payne, who has done much work to help us in our understanding of the scriptures, and its reliability was once talking to a liberal scholar and he was pointing out these things to him he said to the liberal scholar look do you realize that the things that you are saying about the Bible are flying in the face of what Jesus Christ said about the Bible you know what the liberal scholar said to him he said of course he says I know a lot more about the Bible than Jesus Christ ever did you see that is in my view the fundamental issue when it comes to the scriptures will we believe man's word about the word of God How will we believe the word of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, about the word of God?